Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to Red Shirts and Runabouts, part of the Heroes Podcast Network. It's your weekly Star Trek podcast where we talk all things Star Trek Discovery, the movies, uh, sometimes we get into Star Trek video games. Uh, as uh, as always, I am one of your regular hosts, Gregory Bosco. want to introduce uh, your two very fine co-captains, Derek and Jeremy. Guys, go ahead and uh, say your hellos. Hello, hello. Hey guys, how's it going? It's quite excellent. And uh, before we dive into this episode, you know, it's the, it was the Star Trek Discovery season finale. I want to kind of throw some more information out there that this weekend, Red Shirts and Runabouts, and actually the entire Heroes Podcast Network is going to be at Planet Comic Con in Kansas City. So that's going to be, you know, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Uh, we're doing actually a live recording of Red Shirts and Runabouts, and that's on Saturday the 17th. Right, Derek? Was at 3 p.m.? Central time? It's 3.30. 3.30, okay. yeah. Yeah, it'll be fun. Yeah, if you're local to the KC area or you're coming to Planet Comic Con, uh, it's going to be a huge convention this year. It's been getting bigger every year. Uh, the three of us here remember when it was just a small little convention in Overland Park and that little the little <laughs> trade center. Yeah. And then it's just it fills up, you know, Bartle Hall now, which is hosts auto shows for 500, 700 cars. Yeah, I miss those good old days where it was just bootleg DVDs and uh, knockoff T-shirts. <laughs> well, and, you know, you're not joking because those small conventions—that's what pretty much what they had. But now they get you know Jason Momoa and, J- and uh, John Cusack, and uh, you know we got some Star Trek Discovery cast members coming out, so that's pretty cool. I am definitely going to get Sonequa Martin Green's action uh, action figure. <laughs> uh, I'll get that too when that eventually comes out. Her autograph. Um, in my uh, my Good federation save. history book, so there you oh. go. Nice. Well, gentlemen, uh, we're and for those uh, for our loyal listeners out there, we're pretty much going to be jumping right into spoiler territory when we talk about this episode, mm-hmm. because I mean, again, it's just following Discovery's recent habit. It picks up within minutes of when the last episode ends, so yeah, there's no build up. It's just bam, yeah, and. Uh, yeah. Will you take my hand? Star Trek Discovery episode 15. Guys, as always, we do that little 10, 15 second micro review and then we jump right into it. So, Derek, what'd you think? All right. So, um, overall, I thought it was a good episode. Um, it did some things that were really interesting. I found, you know, of course, where it leaves off to be very compelling. Um, it didn't quite have the same energy as a, a couple of the episodes leading up to it because there was just so much intensity that was building up between. Um, the different storylines that were coming together. This one didn't quite have that level of intensity, but it was a good episode. Yeah, it kind of reminded me of the the third Lord of the Rings movie where everything kind of comes to a head about halfway through, and then it's then it's like a series of denouements after that, where you have like 
it it just the ending gets drawn out for the second half of the episode. So it's it's not it's not like the other ones where everything kind of comes to a point of tension, uh, like right before the third act, and then everything pays off in the last second. It's more kind of a, a wrap up episode, which I'm fine with. It was still really good. Oh yeah, and I actually uh, I, I laugh because you two know I kind of make fun of the uh, in a very friendly way the people that make up the random complaints about about TV shows because <laughs> I saw I saw a comment on one of the Discovery threads where it's like it wasn't as good as Best of the Both Worlds. I'm like stop. I'm like that's that like might be the greatest season finale in Star Trek history. You're comparing it to, yeah. It's like season one. Relax. <laughs> yeah, it's like my my minor league baseball team lost to the Cleveland Indians. I'm like, well, yeah, yeah. Well, having having seen the entire thing now, uh, I would I would easily say this is the best first season of any Star Trek thing ever, as far as like cleanliness and cohesiveness and like quality. And I'll, I'll leave it to you two to, to give it the full talk of the, the full season discussion for the panel next week that I will not be on. So that's that's my two cents. Yeah, yeah. So just to be clear, so today we're really focusing just on the finale, Will You Take My Hand? And next week uh, we will be kind of doing a, a whole season one wrap up with special guest uh, Ray, um, Siren Ray Cosplay. She's also co-host with me on our Screen Heroes podcast which is the flagship show on the Heroes Podcast Network. So um, the three of us will talk about the season as a whole. Um, but today we're going to really kind of hit this episode hard. Um, spoiler alert. <laughs> spoiler alert. Yes, black alert. Um, comparing it to Best of Both Worlds seems pretty disingenuous just because, you know, keeping in mind that uh, the person who wrote that episode didn't think he was coming back. Um, for the next season, he didn't think he had a job, so he was able to kind of paint everybody into a really intense corner because it wasn't going to be his problem yeah. to get anybody out of it, um, you know. And it was at a a time where the show was really at its highest ratings. It was definitely not the first season, um, you know. And you can't be as bold as threatening to kill off your lead character at the end of every season finale. No, and it's also, I'm all for people complaining about TV shows or, like, logical complaints about movies and shows and storyline or character interaction. That stuff's fine. It's the random complaints like that. And like you said, the person was probably just trolling. But you're wasting, it's just like, why even waste your time with a weird comparison like that? It's, you know, the bubonic plague of the 14th century was worse than the flu. I'm like, okay, I get it. But Stop. (laughs) Well, and why even waste our times acknowledging their complaint? It's some random internet asshole. Let's let's give our own thoughts on it and not uh, couch everything with the complaints of some yeah, exactly. rando bitching. Well, so, okay, I have one small question for you guys. So, for those who don't know, I am a little bit colorblind. I have some color deficiencies. Could you guys tell that the Orions were green? Uh, yeah. No. The, the, I could not. There weren't a ton of actual... Orions, but the ones that there were uh, did definitely have a green hue, but the lighting was all over the place, so it was kind of hard. They weren't as green as they were in Enterprise. Okay, okay. So that's kind of how I took it. Um, it was just that it was I couldn't tell that they were Orions because, you know, they, they were all different shapes and sizes and types of people, which uh, was kind of a different take on the Orions from what we've seen previously, um, and I, just, I had a hard time seeing the green, so I was just curious if that was me. It looked like, at least on the TV when I was watching it, it almost looked like a mint green, especially compared yeah, to the... Yeah, it was a real subtle yeah, green. Yeah, subtle green, especially compared to, 
you know, the Orions in the original series, which I think one of them was even played by Majel Barrett, or the Orions in Enterprise, the Orion in to, uh, what's her face? Rachel Griffiths from the 2009 Star Trek. Okay. Yeah. All right. So anyway, so that's kind of, um, the, where a good chunk of the episode takes place. I don't know if you guys want to start earlier than that. I mean, we can, we can set up the, the whole mission. I mean, what they come up with is they're going to take a drone, uh, and in, send it into the volcanic tunnels beneath, um, Kronos. And, uh, they needed to find a location with which they could penetrate the, the surface. Even though they themselves penetrate the surface, they, they spore jump into a cave uh, under the surface of Kronos. And then, um, yeah, it's it's basically all of the non-Starfleet members of the crew. So you have uh, Vos, or Vogue Tyler, you have Specialist Burnham, you have uh, Mirror Universe Captain Giorgio, and then Cadet Tilly. So it's like the the least, uh, least high-ranking members of the crew pretty much saved the Federation, which I think is funny. That is a really good point. Um, and before we get too far from it, the the actual spore jump into inside the planet I thought was a pretty cool scene. Oh, that was gorgeous! Yeah, with the the stabilizing beams and all that. All yeah, all the thrusters and everything. Because you know we we don't get to see a lot of atmospheric stuff with these big starships. Voyager got to do it a couple of times, right? But if the Enterprise is entering an atmosphere, that's a bad sign. And so. Um, I thought it was really cool seeing it, it jump into this giant, you know, cave and they had to, you know, quickly adjust and not crash. And it just, it was a really beautiful special effects scene. Well, in the whole plot line of trying to find the, like the volcanic chambers to put the probe, which we'll talk more about that probe later. And I don't know, random, but you know, the way my brain works. Did you guys ever play a video game called Wing Commander 3? Hell yeah. Yes. It's the exact same plot line at the end. I'm just saying it. <laughs> a little bit, Yeah. <laughs> But don't get me wrong. If you're going to borrow, borrow from other great sci-fi. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say I did like – I thought it was weird how there was like an Orion outpost on Kronos. I, I didn't really quite understand the logic behind that. But I will say that annoyance aside, I thought the aesthetics of the way the, the look was and the look of the characters and the people, I, I, I like that. It looked like a backwater kind of a rogue spaceport. Not a spaceport. uh it's like a like a den of thieves, and mm-hmm. I kind of like a den of space thieves, and they did a good job with that. Yeah, it was kind of like Kronos has its own little Mos Eisley. It was it was very much <laughs> uh, a den of or a what is it a wretched hive, a wretched hive of scumbag villainy. Yeah, <laughs> and I get it because the the next generation, the DS Nine, those Klingons would probably never tolerate something like this. But I don't know the these Klingons. I can see not having any problems with it. The Klingons were always a rowdy bunch. Yeah, I think the Orions and the Klingons could get along. They would obviously butt heads at times, too, don't get me wrong. But if you're going to have an outpost on Kronos that is not Klingon, I guess, I mean, it would be Orions, right? Yeah. I I mean, I think that makes the most logical sense. Um, And it it allowed them to to have some nice little Easter eggs. You know, you have the the tardigrade space whale meat that Tilly chows down on for a couple of seconds. Tardigrade. Yeah, the the space whale, the Gormigander, Gormigander, Gormigander. Gormigander. See, I screwed up. Gormigander. Yes. Um, so yeah, you had the Gormigander, which meat, which was cool, and then you of course had the the only um, was the only indigenous life of City Alpha Five. Did you guys catch that? No. Yes, the Seti eel. Yes. 
They had yeah. two of them. Two oh. of them frying in a pan. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which, I, on my I, list of things to eat, it's not going to include brain parasites. I mean, if yeah. you cook it, it's fine. I, I don't know about that. <laughs> you are so sensitive. You won't eat kelpian. You won't eat brain parasites. You probably wouldn't <laughs> Wait, even eat gormagander. <laughs> I don't know if I want Mad Cow Klingon or whatever the hell it's going to be called. It's if it's cooked, it's fine. It's Mad Targ disease. Yeah, yeah. Mad Targ, <laughs> Mad Targ disease. Hoof, hoof and double penis disease. Right? Oh man! <laughs> yes. I, I can't believe they showed that best best reveal of of any like weird alien trait is like yeah Klingons do have two of every organ, including the dick. I mean, I, my Confirm. mouth kind of dropped a bit. <laughs> I, I couldn't believe I was actually seeing it. Like, like, a lot of stuff happened in this episode. That was the most shocking thing to me. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, never never going to look at Worf the same way again. No, no, never. Or um, Dax, I guess. <laughs> I was just going to say it. Oh, man, or Troy. Great. Or Troy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Good for them. I mean, cultural unity among species. It's Yeah. Though it does it does pose some interesting questions for Balana. Oh yeah. You know, since she's yeah. <laughs> Are but, you implying uh, that Balana might have two vaginas? Well, she's half Klingon and So maybe you know, one and a half? She, I mean she might, I don't know. That's true. I'm fairly confident that Tom only has one penis though, so Yeah. Hey Paramount, you can hire us really cheap. We will help you with these facts. <laughs> and we will go to the graves helping you with Star Trek. So don't worry about it. You can find us in Kansas City, Heroes Podcast Network, Red Shirts and Runabouts. But it, do, it does add another layer of, of kind of sadness to what uh, what Ash has gone through. Because not only has he had his, <laughs> his, his body work done, but he lost a dick in the process. He did. He did. That's true. That's, that's commitment. Yeah. That's what that is. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, so they end up in what is essentially an Orion strip club. Uh, I think all of like Orion society is like partially strip club. Well, sure. But they could have gone, I mean, there's gotta be like, you know, non strip club areas, but anyway, so, so that was a little interesting. Um, definitely a little more revealing than the Orions we've seen previously. Um, though the, the structure of, of the society seems a little bit different because there were, there were men involved too. Yeah. Yes. Which, you know, I thought the Orions at one point were like a hugely, like a medieval style patriarchal society, which maybe it works both ways now. Maybe whoever's just the most powerful person in charge enslaves both, both genders to do their dancing now. Or just whichever well, yeah. ones are pretty get enslaved. Because Enterprise kind of retconned the Orions a bit to say that, well, the women who are kind of like these sexy, you know, seductresses are actually the ones in charge, right? They kind of did that little flip on the head thing where they're actually the leaders and it's all been the, a ruse. Right, because they use their sexiness to control everyone. Exactly. But this is a little bit different because this had, you know, this this was very much a, a strip club scenario. There were men and women, uh, as, as Giorgio took advantage of. Um <laughs> How did you guys feel about that? So one thing I, I also want to mention with Giorgio, I just rewatched um, Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Giorgio is wearing almost the exact same um, space punk outfit, or the actress is, as she is in Guardians 2, where she's the uh, the offshoot of the Ravagers. You guys know what I'm Ma- talking about? Michelle Yao was in Guardians 2? 
Yeah, she barely had a speaking role, but she was one of that crew of the like original Reavers that uh, had kicked out Yondu with like the, wow. the diamond guy. But it was like it was like her with like eye makeup and like very kind of spacey leather clothes. You'll have to keep an eye out for it the next time you watch. Yeah, I yeah, I totally missed that. That's fascinating. I gotta go rewatch it just for that now. I know. That's crazy. To answer your question, Derek, I was actually okay with the whole setup and the whole environment and even the whole Giorgio interaction with the dancers. Because I'll be honest, if I'm going on what potentially might be a suicide mission, I might just not care anymore. I mean, a Terran, the way the Terrans are described, even in all the other shows, including this one, they're a proud, arrogant, prideful people that are going to take joy in whatever they can. It it fits their characters. I mean, whether or not it clashes with like normal human society, I mean, it, it, this, we're talking about fake plastic space aliens. Yeah. So the cultures are going to be different, and the Terran Empire is all about that. Yeah, that's a good point. That is a good point. Um, so I think the part probably in the in the strip club that surprised me the most is Tilly. Uh, actually, like, taking drugs. Yeah. You mean with with Clint Howard, Ron <laughs> Howard's brother? Tranya. <laughs> also, I love that that's, that's his, his sinister Orion plan is to just, like, get random passers-by stoned and then steal their shit. <laughs> I do like, like, he's not going to kill her, right? He's nice about it. He's like, well, you were sleeping. Yeah. So. His little laser knife probably would have cut her arm a lot better than him. <laughs> sorry greg no it's uh i i'm trying to think of a good way of wording it because clint howard i mean i don't care what they call him his face is just so distinct yeah i mean i mean even even I, in the the colored makeup and, and the outfit i was like is that yeah that's clint howard i recognize yeah, him I, you know, from a mile away i always th- i always think back to him like in you know Waterboy and all this stuff just because that's the way my brain works yeah yeah austin powers i mean uh it's, it's, and you know, I like it. It's Paramount, you Star Trek, people want to do cameos. It's, I will say that scene made me really question why Giorgio would want to bring Tilly down to a planet like Kronos that has an Orion outpost on there, knowing that Tilly's never been exposed to anything like that. I don't know, maybe she just assumes that, that Tilly has it within her to be, to be Killy. Also, we you know we can't talk about this without the part where before they leave where she's uh, deciding to bring Tilly on the mission and, and Tilly just inherently gives the Terran salute and Michael yeah, goes, don't, don't, do that. Don't, don't do that don't do that so so funny I I don't know I felt more like Giorgio wanted to do it just to screw with Tilly well yeah it seemed, it seemed like everything Giorgio doing was just kind of like fuck it like she she wasn't really in it to to win it she was just kind of doing stuff. Like she didn't really have any kind of convictions for, for what she was doing, which we see later when she's confronted on it. She's just like, "Nah, screw it. I'll just, I'll just leave." Yeah, because I mean, what does she care, right? This isn't her universe. It's not yeah. her empire. Right, she's playing with house point, money. Right, exactly. Yes, which I appreciate that. That that I feel like that's a realistic take for the character. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because all she's caring about and that all she wants is to get back home. And if they're I don't think she even cares about that her, anymore. I, I don't think she aspires to get back home because that home is nothing to her anymore because she lost her seat as the Empress. So she's really just, she's got nothing. Mm-hmm. 
she's a, a Ronin. Maybe we'll see her, uh, the actress again next season then. Oh yeah, definitely. She's gonna team up with, uh, what's his face? Dwight, Dwight Schrute. <laughs> Rain Wilson. Yeah, yeah Harry she's Mudd. Free Harry Mudd. Yeah. <laughs> They're gonna tie in all, all the storylines they had to kind of crush this year. They're gonna bring back next year with her running it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I was just gonna jump right into because we go from the Orion kind of the scenes with the, with the tavern and, Tavern, Moss Eisley. Damn it, who said Moss Eisley? Because that's not all I can think about. I did. <laughs> um, cantina. Thank you, Jeremy. The Cantina. Um, but we go right from that stuff. And early on in the podcast when we were talking about that there's no slow burn in this episode, things jump right from A to B to C to D. There's no slow burn. And, no, and they go right <laughs> to the, jumping right into them opening up the case and realizing there's a problem. Well, I mean, concurrent to that, we also have the scene with uh, Michael and and Ash, Voke, Tyler uh, playing the awesome Klingon game that looks like a giant, like, European-style board game, like a Settlers of Catan or something. It's Mm -hmm. a big, weird hex map, and they're rolling 12-sided dice. It's like, Klingons are fucking nerdy. (laughs) It's like, I want to play that game. That looks fun. Well, Star Trek has a lot of games, right? You've got Dabo and Kataskot and... uh... Oh, what's that one on TNG they used to play on the holodeck? Like four-dimensional chess that they're always playing on the 10 forward? <laughs> well, there's that. There's the, Yeah, there's the three-dimensional chess. Oh, oh yeah. There's the, the racquetball, one... that like hollow racquetball that Riker plays. That's it. That's the one I was thinking of. Oh, yeah. Parisi Squares. Was that the yeah, one? Yeah, Parisi, Parisi Squares. Parisi Squares. Parisi and don't squares. forget, uh, Human played Domjot. Yeah. Right, Domjot. yep. So this is just another game added to the long line of, of Trek tabletop <laughs> Well, floor top. Floor I'm willing top. to give Klingon Risk a try. I mean, who knows? They might kill me. Risk. I wonder but if it's like a legacy game. Like you come back to it and the board is different every time. Nice. Nice. Yeah. I like it. Oh, also another thing that we just kind of see in the background while they're, while they're running around up to these shenanigans is, was that a, was that a trill getting the, the tattoo thing? In it had tent? to be, right? Yeah. Cause she had the, the trill spots. I wonder if that was the precursor to Curzon. Like, so a lot of people are mentioning that. I think it's just a trill. Just a trill. Because, yeah, because, I mean, trill, they, they didn't seem to have a bad relationship with any sp- particular species. So no, I, but I Curzon specifically was was very close to the, the Dax and was involved in the, uh, oh, what's it called? The the treaty. Yeah. Which would no, have you're, been, you're right. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it could be. It's no, it's no reason to rule it out. Yeah. It is possible. Though, wasn't Curzon a dude? Yeah, so that's why I was saying this might be pre-Curzon. Okay. So I just the Dax symbiote. Well, it's something, but it's, it's some other, I forget what who was before Curzon. It's been a while. Yeah. But, yeah, it's possible. The tattoo is really cool, though, right? Because, like, you touch it and, it, like, it flames out and is all neon and stuff. Yeah. I'm not sure what the, like utility of that was like could you turn it back off well the trill are pretty smart right they can figure that out yeah but speaking of neat things did you guys catch when uh, uh tilly and Giorgio were talking and Giorgio was reminiscing about all the stuff her and killy did mm-hmm. including the subjugation of beta zed yeah in the terran universe yeah poor beta zed they uh harry mud robbed their bank and on <laughs> they got subjugated they're just kind of a punchline 
Well, because I think it's it's one of those planets that's uh, easily recognizable by fans, but they didn't have a big enough empire for that to really impact canon a whole lot. Right, yeah. Someone tells me they're not exactly known for having a fierce military either. Probably I not. I mean, yeah. just to be honest. But anyway, Probably so... Not. But at the same time, so when they crack open the case, <laughs> I'll admit... This actually was a little surprising. It's not surprising that it happened. I'm a little surprised that it is what it ended up being. I mean, I wasn't because Cornwall has proven to be the worst goddamn admiral in, like, Starfleet history. Aside from my personal feelings about the the one that wanted to take Data apart, like, she has made the worst calls. She's just such a coward. I mean, and like Derek said a few episodes ago that she's, like, a peacetime admiral who doesn't know how to deal with this stuff, but she's just like, whatever the, the bad call is, she makes it. Well, she's a psychiatrist that became an admiral, not an admiral that became a psychiatrist. Yeah. Versus the next generation admirals or DS9 admirals that it seems like they all grew up, or grew up, uh, matured in their careers through like combat roles. Yeah. But I don't think it was Cornwall on her own. It was the whole kind of Federation Council um, making this decision. I mean, Sarek was involved. The other admirals were involved in this decision as well. So, you know, this was agreed upon by several people, and that is probably even more disturbing. Yeah, especially because it would not have worked. Like, if you if you think about the psychology of the Klingon people, that would not have calmed things down. They They would have just, like, set the atmosphere of Earth on fire. They wouldn't have, like, scattered to the wind. Yeah, and because that's a couple episodes ago, I made the comment that the way the current war was going, the way the Federation has been so heavily defeated, there's no peace treaty that the Federation could sign that the Federation's not going to be embittered about for the next hundred years. Right. Because they were just so massively devastated. I mean, I remember the scene in DS9 where the Dominion are talking to, uh, oh, I forgot his name, the, the Cardassian leader, Galdacott. And he's like, oh, we're winning the battles, but, you know, the, the source of resistance is going to be Earth. Our first step is going to have to be eradicate the population. And Dukat's like, you can't do that. And they don't get into it, but you read the Wikipedias and all that stuff, and, you know, Dukat's basically saying, you do that to them, the the Alpha Quadrant's never going to stop fighting us. Right, Every yeah. world in the Alpha Quadrant's going to just immediately turn on us for this barbaric act. Well, because you end up with, you have nothing left to lose. Yeah, right. right. I mean, that's, that's that's always been kind of the the un, uncrossable line in Star Trek is you don't mess with anybody's home planet. That's true. I mean, even in Earth history, you know, it's the War of eighteen twelve. The the British and Canadians burned down DC, and they're like, "Oh, Americans surrender," and we're like, well, "Okay, we got nothing else to lose now. <laughs> We've right. already lost everything. We might as well just keep fighting until we can come up with some sort of peace deal." Right. I mean, same same with the Zindi and Enterprise. It's like you. You zap Earth once, and we will send our best ship, and it will take an entire season to just do everything it can to kill you. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly what it is. And I'm, I'm with you both on saying, even if they destroy Kronos, and I don't know what Derek's full thoughts are on it yet, but I don't think the Klingons stop. I think there's still a fleet above Earth, and they're going to go, well, now it's time for payback. Right, and if, I mean... It seems like if you can control this bomb and use this bomb, the hydro bomb that they send into the volcanic systems underneath Kronos, if it can be used as a gun to the head and basically hold the planet hostage, why is that not the plan from from 
you know, step one. Because it's it, that that itself is a good plan. It's like you don't have to destroy the planet to control the planet if you can communicate with these people and say, like, and that was that was kind of the weird thing at the end of that where um, Laurel is just like showing a pad to the to the collected people and say, I can blow up the planet if I want, and they'll believe her immediately because it's a like a Federation pad. It's like does everyone immediately recognize the the triggering mechanism of a hydro bomb that they're like. Oh! That's, we know what's happening. And that's one criticism of this episode I'm seeing that I think a lot of people agree with is that the episode wrapped up pretty nice and neat. Yeah, it was, it was very hasty and convenient. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it glossed over some stuff, but I mean, that's sometimes just due to time, right? I yeah. Mean, they can't sit there and have an hour-long debate at the Klingon Council. Though we certainly saw that a lot in uh, Next Gen. <laughs> yes, but those were standalone episodes. <laughs> sure. Well, and, and here's my question. I think Derek, you might know this. This episode was filmed was still was still being filmed when the first part of the season was on the air, wasn't it? Yes. From a technical standpoint, that might have had some impact is you know, if a cast and crew of producers and, exe- and developers and financial people, if they don't know what the hell's going on with is the second season guaranteed, how much effort should we put into the rest of the season? Should we We've got $100 million in our budget. Should we blow it all on season one or should we save a little bit? If they don't know, then it is hard from even a business point of view to know exactly what you're doing. Yeah. Well, and don't forget, guys, that this episode and last week's episode were bonuses. It was only a 13-episode order originally, and it uh, played so well that they gave it a two-episode extension. So... We don't really know what the finale would have been, necessarily. I would imagine that it was leaving the Mirror Universe was the finale, originally. Well, we don't know that they necessarily extended the the episode order and then tacked on two additional episodes. It might have been some of the interior episodes that either got lengthened or extended. I mean, that's true. They just would have had less time, you know, to produce those episodes. Yeah. So. That's a good point, and it's it's kind of like the Game of Thrones effect, where HBO wanted them to do, you know, season seven have a whole bunch of episodes, season eight have a whole bunch of episodes, and the showrunners are like, look, we're running out of plot lines with these characters because we're out of source material. We got to start wrapping this up. Let's focus on fewer but better episodes instead of ten episodes where everything is stretched out. Right. And you get thirty minutes of this person talking to this person, and maybe that's something they wanted to do. Like Derek mentioned with this extension. They had a good storyline they wanted to wrap up. They get the war wrapped up in season one. Maybe season two is all about truly... Because, you know, uh, Burnham and company spent, you know, five to ten minutes of this episode alone talking about the ideals of Starfleet and getting them to convince their plan or change their plans. Yeah. And maybe that's a good segue to season two where Starfleet gets back into, we got to rebuild, we got to recolonize, we got to re-explore, and they start doing more of the traditional Star Star Trek stuff. Well, yeah, I mean, all of this is going to lead to what's what's basically going to be kind of a cold war between the Federation and the Klingons that leads to the, the later conflicts, like when, what, Kronos' uh, moon is blown up, like 30 years from this point. So it's like, there's, there's a lot of kind of tense uh, relationships between these, these people after this point. It's not like things get, get chill. So, okay, so we have all of that, of course, and then there's the idea of giving this over to Laurel, 
and having Lorel use it as a bargaining chip to bring all the houses together. I'm going to yeah. be the first to say, I called it. I knew they were going to do that with Lorel. <laughs> you did. You did call it weeks ago. <laughs> well, I called it and said that they were going to do it with uh, Ash Vogue, because he went off with them to be the uh, the torchbearer. Yeah, I guess I guess you're both right. Yeah, which maybe because both actor the actor who plays Tyler and the actress that plays Laurel, they're both pretty talented people. Yeah. I mean, they're not just your typical space adventure warrior woman. She, you can we talked about this uh, earlier of so many episodes ago. You can see the actress's emotions through all the ma- all the makeup and the costume and actually get a feel for her and She's she has a good she has a great screen presence, so I'm glad they're going to continue using her. Maybe she'll be back again next season because, like you guys said, the 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 Cold War between the Klingons and Earth is going to be going on for about the next thirty years now. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we're going to see everybody again because I mean we're going to see Lorca again. I'm sure pop out of the mycelial network at some point. <laughs> he becomes a new tardigrade. <laughs> yeah, writing a tardigrade. <laughs> <laughs> I'd watch that. I'd watch that. Yeah, I would applaud. I would stand up. So, I guess the real question is, for Lorel, is um, what what's going to keep her in power, do you think? The bomb? <laughs> well, but, but that's the thing. Like, Can that be a long-term solution? Is there just always going to be this bomb on Kronos? I mean, if it's, if it's encoded to her bioprint, it's basically a dead man's trigger. So if anybody wrongs Laurel, it blows up their home world. I mean, that's, that's a pretty good way to keep yourself in power for a little while until somebody figures out a way around it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, I just, I guess it seems a little too convenient. Yeah. It is. Well, and I'm, I'm yeah. trying to think back to the Klingon history we know. And even when it comes to next generation with the Klingon civil war and the Duras family against Gowron, has there ever been a female emperor empress of the Klingon Empire that we know of? I have no idea. So, not that comes to mind because normally the council is is led by the 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 men of the houses, um, and that was kind of the the Duras sisters were trying to you know change that balance and and take control themselves. That was kind of part of the narrative. Yeah, uh, but I'm not sure we ever really talk specifically about emperors all that much. Definitely not dating back to the time of Kirk. No. Well, and the reason I ask about that is maybe what they're going to do is somehow Lorel helps unify the empire or whatever, and she goes to the head of one of the families that's actually noble, and she's like, "You've done the most for the war to unify." Maybe he got five or six houses to follow him or something. And she's like, you are the new example of what the Torchbearer could be. Then again, I don't know. Maybe we're going to show up next season and Tyler's going to look entirely like Voke and he's the new Emperor. Um, <laughs> I doubt it. Nah. I doubt it too, but it's... I have no idea. I, can, I can't imagine what they're going to do right now. That was one interesting thing that um, Tyler kind of pointed out during the, the gaming scene was like, these, these assholes wouldn't give me the time of day when I was a translucent... Because they like they judged him as a Klingon based on his skin color, but they were almost more open and inviting to him as a human that spoke Klingon than as a Klingon that had translucent skin. So it's like he he can accomplish more in this guise than as a Klingon. Don't forget though that you know he does make the statement that a, a human talking Klingon 
is like a, a dog wearing water skis. Right. Right. You just so, came up with that. Yeah, right, exactly. So it's not that, um, you know, they, they are seeing him at any type of significant level to be an equal or anything. They actually just think it's amusing. That's true. Right. So they're, they're really more of just like making fun of him and enjoying the, the, um, the novelty of the situation. But they're slapping him on the back and letting him play. I mean, it's, there's a certain level of, uh, acceptance beyond just amusement. It's not like yeah. if, if a, a Tark walking on its back legs had showed up to play, they would just be like, sure, let's slap him on the back and be good good pals for a minute. Well, could the Tark speak Klingon? Uh, probably. <laughs> well, even if you think back to Next Generation with the Klingon Civil War and Worf and his brother Kern are on the homeworld and they're drinking, but they're they're drinking with like the Duras troops. And even Worf is like, this is just weird. I mean, those are the enemy. Yeah. And Kern is like, ah, then space, they're the enemy, but here we are all Klingon. Ah. And I was like, <laughs> I, I don't follow, but okay. I mean, that kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the levels of, of honor and xenophobia and, and whatever else in the, the Klingon uh, society kind of fluctuate based on necessity. Well, I think they're still growing, right? I mean, the Federation that we see here is not the same that we end up seeing in the uh, the Golden Era with you know TNG and all of that. So, you know, that's still a hundred years earlier for the Klingon Empire too, and a hundred years is a long time. Think about what you know the United States looked like a hundred years ago. True, you we know? were still fighting World War One, kind of freakishly to think about it like that. Right. I mean, that was a long time ago. But that's that's also a, a big piece of like a hundred years ago is technology. When once we hit this point in Star Trek, like the advancements as far as technology goes aren't huge. It's mostly just societal shifts. Well, okay. So think about before World War One, the countries and empires that existed that ceased to exist today. Right. All of the you ones know? that Britain took. Yeah, you know, like the the Ottoman Empire, for example. Yeah. Right. You know, so the Klingon Empire is, is the same type of entity. It's a big political, cultural, geographical entity that will change over the course of a hundred years. True. And we, you know, who knows what happens between, you know, it's 10 years before the first episode of the original series. And then after that, it's another 30 years before Undiscovered Country. And then another 70 years after that, before the next generation. It's true. It's always crazy to think about the gaps between all of these because they do so much to try and tie them together. Because, I mean, Sarek is is in this show and in Next Generation all the way through later seasons. So it's like, you, you think, well, they can't be that far apart, but it's like, no, Cl- or Vulcans just live for goddamn ever. Well, but the Klingon, Klingons are the same way. Yeah, Klingons do live a long time. You know, uh, Cole, Koloth, and Kang. You know the the whole um, oh the Blood Oath episode of Deep Space Nine. Yeah, right. Yeah, you know, those are Klingons who were in the original series. Really? Yes, but they're from the original series. You know, those are original series Klingons who obviously look different. So the whole retconning in Enterprise of why they look different kind of is a little inconsistent with Deep Space Nine, but. Um, <laughs> Well, and also, we can we can say now that they 
if if they were promising to explain why Klingons look different in the course of this season of television, they did not. No, but like I mean, that's my point though is that we want to really harp on discovery for very specific canon issues. And I'm not saying canon should not be discussed. Obviously we talk about it all the time, but even like deep space nine and enterprise had canonical issues with deep space nine, all of a sudden having these original series Klingons that look like Worf and then enterprise retconning it. So that doesn't make any sense anymore. Um, you know, other shows had, had canon issues. Discovery has some that I think are worth talking about. I'm not sure that, the physical look of the Klingons is worth discussing anymore. I mean, the style maybe like if you, at that last scene where Laurel is speaking to everybody, there are Klingons in the audience there that are dressed very similarly to the way we see them in the movies and TNG. Yeah. Yeah, True. 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 You know, the Klingon canon, anything I want to talk about, and it's been on my mind for about 15 years now, because that's how my brain works in DS nine. You remember when the whole Klingon war starts? Mm-hmm. And uh, Garrett gets attacked, and he's talking to Bashir, and he's like, I don't know why they attack me. You know, relations between the Cardassians and Klingons have always been amicable. And, you know, Bashir's like, well, except for this, you know, incident at the Patrekka Nebula that lasted 18 years. I looked on a map, damn it, there is no Patrekka Nebula, and the Klingons and Cardassians don't border each other. Bashir, <laughs> you lie. And do you know why? Do you know why? Because the Federation's right between them both. <laughs> I'm sorry. I had just I had to make a humorous insult at myself because I get obsessed with some of that stuff. Did that bring no, you closure? Bringing that up on the podcast, it did bring me closure. I can, you can finally sleep. I can finally sleep, and I will feel better teaching my daughter about Star Trek history now that you two have helped me. So, Greg, I'm, I'm going to break this for you. So, so keep in mind, space is three dimensional, right? So all the maps that we have are really just flat two dimensional maps. For all we know, that nebula is underneath something else. And the Cardassian Empire does go underneath the Federation's territory. Well, this can't be tolerated. Now I got to go find out. <laughs> so, <laughs> I that's had closure, the big thing, right? I had closure for two minutes, and now I got to go find a 3D model of the galaxy. You know, just don't <laughs> yeah. don't be like Khan. You know, just you know, three dimensional space, not two dimensional thinking. So, but look, when the ships meet each other, they always meet each other the appropriate way. Oh, speaking of ships meeting. We, we have about 10 minutes left with the show, and we need to talk about the goddamn last scene. All right. So, of course, guys, when they get the distress call and they start showing up the call sign, and it's NCC-1. Yeah. Was there any doubt in your mind what ship that was going to be? Well, no. no. And, and like, I had seen at least four people spoil it on Twitter oh. because I, I didn't watch it at the exact moment it, it aired. So, of course... Everyone was was live tweeting the episode and said, "Oh shit, Enterprise!" But oh, uh, sorry, that's fine. It wasn't you? It was like the the cast no. and crew. <laughs> I, well, yeah. They, so they were doing a live tweet. So because you know it's because the show doesn't actually air on television, it's impossible to know exactly when to hit play and yeah. be in sync with everybody. So for me, when I watch something like this, where spoilers are going to impact me, I actually don't go on social media during the episode. Well, and I'm and I'm good about it. as soon as I see the right accounts talking about it, I will I will glance right off of them and not spoil myself. What it was that spoiled it for me was uh, some military naval history Twitter account saying this wasn't the first time the Discovery and the and the Enterprise met, and it was, it was a picture of two very old naval ships from some history account that someone on the the cast retweeted, and I was like, oh goddamn it. <laughs> 
Like, oh, okay, so I didn't see that information. One. I did see the NASA shuttles. Oh, maybe that's what it was. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're right. Be- yeah, because the Enterprise and the Discovery did meet in almost the exact same posturing as Wait, they did, did you at retweet the end of that? This episode. Maybe you did spoil it. Well, that was later, much later. <laughs> so yeah, it, all, it all comes back to blaming Derek. Look, I retweeted <laughs> a lot of stuff after the episode was over. Um, you know, but like, it's, it's a tough situation, right? Like I wanted to be part of the discussion. I wanted to get the screen caps of the ships, you know, yeah. and everything. Uh, I was, I was excited. Look, it, it was a fan servicey thing to do. Especially with all the music cues at the end. It worked on me though. It totally worked on oh, me. Oh yeah. I loved I mean, it. I loved it. I knew it was coming and I still got chills. Oh yeah. I mean, it was, it, we, we've been talking about the entire podcast series where the constitution class ships. We know they're out there. This is their timeline where they're in the heyday. And so we got to encounter them, and there's only like 12 of them at this time. So the Enterprise is one of the most popular ones, and it's one of the ones the Federation relies on the most. It makes sense. And I mean, plus, not, it was pretty it's awesome. It's not my Enterprise, but it's an Enterprise, which is pretty good. All right, so let's let's talk about that for a minute then, Jeremy. What do you mean it's not your Enterprise? I mean, I wanted them to jump out of time so far ahead that they were hanging out with Picard. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So, so Greg, how did you feel about the design of the Enterprise? I loved it. I actually feel like it's the kind of design that Roddenberry would have used back in the 60s if he had the A, technology, and B, the money. Oh, yeah. Because... It still has that Constitution style look to it, but it looks more like the way modern Star Trek ships look when the as the technology got better. And it doesn't have those crazy elongated beams going to the warp nacelles, which I always thought looked dorky. <laughs> so I will say this: I, I found that the ship okay, the ship's beautiful. They did a great job. I want to yeah. make that just take that out of the way. It's an interesting combination of designs, though. It has aspects from the original pre-pilot Enterprise design. It has aspects from the Phase 2 refit. And it has aspects from the NX-01 from the Enterprise TV show. Like, they really mashed all of these together to make, really, I think, Greg, you're right, what the ship was always supposed to look like. Well, and I'm, I'm the layman of the three of us where I haven't studied, like, you know, schematics and stuff like that. But um, just to me, it looked like kind of the midway point between the, the NX Enterprise Enterprise and like the, the re-envisioned Kelvin timeline Enterprise. So it, it kind of feels like that, that bridging point in the evolution of the, the design from, from that to that, if not from that to the original series. That's fair. I think that's fair. The, the one problem I do have with it, though, is the ship looks so good that it reminded me how out of place the Discovery looks. Yes, absolutely. Now there's people calling for the next season to just have the Enterprise be the main ship. And that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen, but it's because it looks so good compared to everything else we've seen on the set, on this show so far. Well, but the Shinzao looked good, and some of the other ships at the Battle of the Binary Stars looked good. It's more of the Discovery itself looks, and I understand, you know, it's the Ralph McQuarrie design. I, I get that, I do, and I appreciate that level of detail. But, you know, the the color palette that they've decided to use, the way that it looks just more CGI rendered than the other ships do, 
it just looks really out of place. When those two ships go nose to nose, one looks like it has always belonged, and the other looks like it doesn't quite fit. Yeah, I don't feel that way. No? I, I, I know that the Discovery is designed that way specifically for its its unique purpose, so I, I kind of give it a pass in that it's not going to fit in because it's got like weird rotating parts and you know needs to function fundamentally on a different level than the other ships that have just warp drive. Well, I mean that that part's fair, you know. I guess for me, it's it's more of just um, the finish on the ship just looks more fake. But again, it's supposed to be like a, a stealth spec ops ship. It, it's not going to have the the standard like ablative plating and, and kind of silver gray. It has more of a dark black. Mm. Okay, that's just my my head cannon for the discovery is that it, it is it is a such a fundamentally different ship that were it to not look like a fundamentally different ship would almost be weirder to me. That's fair. Um, now I will say, while it was a beautifully shot scene, you know, having them go through the the view screen, see the Enterprise kind of coming out of this nebula and swoop down, like it was beautiful it really really was um but some people were making an interesting point that in naval situations and let's face it starfleet is the space navy um it uh ships in a just you know in a distress situation keeping in mind that the discovery is answering a distress call coming face to face like that nose to nose like that would be considered a um aggressive stance how do you guys feel about that I mean, I can see that unless the Enterprise is just running from something and accidentally just <laughs> encounters the Discovery. Although, you think the distress, the distress call, I know they couldn't really hear anything. Um, hopefully, they'd be like, holy shit, there's a Borg or something chasing us. I obviously know it's not the Borg, but I'm just using something as a frame of reference, and that's why they're running. And, of course, I don't know. I mean, I don't know enough of the history of Captain Pike's time on the Enterprise to know if there was actually, at least not in the show's, that there was a similar situation. Yeah, I'm. I think it was for aesthetics. I don't. I don't think they were running up on them like they were about to start shooting. I was just, I was just curious, you know, what you guys thought about that because it was kind of an interesting point to bring up, and it, it's it's always been complicated to know how do you show these ships in in space without it looking silly? Because obviously, you know, it's this giant three-dimensional space. They can be upside down and at weird angles and pointed in strange directions. But can you take that seriously when it's on the screen, right? Hashtag flat galaxy. (laughs) Hashtag what? Flat galaxy, just like flat flat. (laughs) I mean, we are in a spiral galaxy that kind of flattens out naturally. It does have some depth to it, but largely it is. It can show be shown in tuned dimensions and not be totally unrealistic. Yeah, that's true. Um, so I of course, say, I, I think I got distracted by the awesome music as well, which I think got my emotions going in a good way. You know, with the, the weird choir. The weird, yeah, I mean, the Star Trek choir Enterprise theme. I was just like, yep, I'm pretty much sold for season two to start now. It was a bold move. Uh, they they redid the whole piece. They got a huge, like, 70-something piece orchestra to do it. Yeah. Uh, and they, they had actual vocals. Um, like, really, like, again, Greg, to your point, like, this is what Roddenberry would have done given the resources that they have today. Oh, absolutely. I mean, because I remember even in, 
the Mirror Universe episodes we've seen in previous shows, like even the one Enterprise did, where they go back in time and they see the Defiant, and the Defiant is literally the old Constitution class design. And that actually looked really awkward to me on screen when you see everything else. You're like, oh, it's nostalgic, but it's not like a good nostalgic. Yeah, well, that was the issue, right? Is if you go back in time and Star Trek has time travel, how do you handle outdated sets and special effects, right? Um, it's it's one of the arguments about like the uniforms in Discovery. Yeah, I, I know they don't look like the original series uniforms, but the original series uniforms were also really cheap. Yeah, as as shown in the the DS Nine Trouble with Tribbles episode. Like that's yes. that's the other way you can do it is where you just laugh at it. And, and kind of hold a lens to it and be like, look how silly this show used to be. But that's that's like not taking into account our our evolving sensibilities and kind of updating everything at the same time. So that's kind of an unfair portrayal of it. Mm-hmm. Well, when they got money and they made the movies after, after, of course, the motion picture, I mean, the Monster Maroon uniforms, I mean, those are legit maybe one of the top uniforms in all of Star Trek, if not the most popular with the way they look. Because they yeah. look they look like real military uniforms that would actually be worn, and they're just fantastic to look at. And they were reused many times, right? You had the, the Voyager episode where um, it was the 35th anniversary episode with Sulu during the Undiscovered Country. They wore them there, and the beginning of Star Trek Generations, they wore them there. Um, yeah. You know, the, uh, one of my favorite episodes of all time, Tapestry from TNG. You know, yeah. Picard's got them yeah. on when he's younger. Uh, you know, yesterday's Enterprise. Like we never got rid of that uniform; it was always there as a part of of history. Whereas the original series uniforms are not really shown much after the original series. You've got, of course, the Deep Space Nine uh, trial, trials and tribulations, and then you have Enterprise uh, in a mirror darkly. Other than that, though, they're pretty much ignored. True. So. Now, we're, we're running out of time here, so let's kind of close things up a little bit. Um, how do you guys feel about kind of the big finale of Burnham getting her commission back, her record being expunged, and Saru not being the captain of Discovery? Well, and that remains to be seen. Uh, I think it might be what... So here's, here's my prediction for season one, or season two, episode one. Somehow, like, Lorca has taken over the, the Enterprise or something and ends up back on the ship or something like that. Like, we're, we're going to see a reset. I don't think we're going to see that new cast member become captain uh, because that would, you know, be such a huge cast change. So I, I kind of don't see that happening. Well, and they're pulling at people's heartstrings in a very kind of sneaky way, but I get it. It was a good way because they say we're going to Vulcan to pick up our new captain. And everybody on the internet I know is like, eh, it can't be Spock. I'm like, it's not Spock. Spock was, no. you know, it's not Spock. So don't worry about that. But I want to, I, I keep scratching my brain because Derek said something a few minutes ago about how the new design of the Enterprise kind of ties in with some of the Phase 2 stuff. But do you remember the motion picture that Klingon scientist, Klingon, yeah, the Klingon scientist, the Vulcan scientist that was killed in the transporter accident? Yes. Mm-hmm. Didn't they say that Vulcan was supposed to go on to be something important in Star Trek Phase 2? But phase he two was, never happened. Yeah. 
he was supposed to replace Spock. That was the idea, was that Kirk always felt comfortable with a Vulcan on the bridge, and he wanted to have that. So when Spock resigned his commission, Kirk still wanted a Vulcan on the bridge. And I wonder if they're going to tie that character back in and make him captain of the Discovery, but I'm not happy that it's not Saru going to be captain. I'm not happy about that at all. At this point, they're going to start shooting season two soon. We haven't had any big announcements about about like actual cast changes and they're they're not going to lose the the actor that plays Lorca. I mean he's still on the show. So I I I can't see a scenario where uh, they they get at the point of a new captain. I thought I, Jason Isaac said he was done. Is he done? I think he's I think he said I think maybe he's just screwing with us. So I've read a lot of interviews the last couple of days here, and what I can tell you is that we probably have not seen the end of Lorca, uh, but it didn't sound like he was going to be a regular, if that makes any sense. Um, and you know, to, to top a couple other things off here, I know um, a lot of people are saying that they think that it's going to be uh, number one from the cage, the original Star Trek pilot who was played by Michelle Barrett, who in Canon actually was never given a name. Uh, I know she's been given a couple of different names in the books, but a lot of people are saying it's going to be her. That's the captain. Now, while it's a cool idea, it doesn't fit the plot of them going to Vulcan to pick up the captain, um, you know, because they unintentionally run into the enterprise. The, the goal was to go to a different location. So it would be, Weird if they ended up with the correct captain by coincidence due to a distress call. I mean, that's a good point. It's Star Trek, so weird things can certainly happen. Yeah, yeah, but I'm not really thrilled that Saru is getting passed over. I think, given what he's been through, given what he's been able to do with the crew, that he deserves that um, that mantle. But I guess he's only been a first officer for about a year. And so that maybe that's not long enough for the Federation, uh, because, you know, Kirk hasn't, uh, hasn't really done the quick jump from cadet to captain like he did in the Kelvin timeline. Yeah. Right. Although they so did maybe... say Saru was the first Kelpian to ever win the Medal of Honor. True. Which I thought was a really nice touch. And he so... deserved it. I mean, oh, yeah. I, no, the awards at the end of the show, I had no problem with. I was like, no, I mean, this, this crew has literally been through hell and back. And by the way, they helped end the Klingon War. So give them their medals, give them their accolades. And I'm happy that Burnham's reinstated. I kind of was complaining about this a few episodes ago. I'm like, Cornwell and company, you can't keep complaining about her. And then asking her, well, we need you to go save us again. Right. Oh, but by the way, you're still just a specialist. On Twitter, Anthony Stamen said, zoom in on my picture when I get the medal. Uh, apparently, I've been given a promotion. So apparently, Lieutenant Commander. Uh, yep. Yeah. Stamen's, Stamen's got a promo, too. Yeah, yeah, it was a big moment, um, you know, for for a lot of the crew, which was cool. So, you know, I I liked the episode overall. I thought it was solid. Obviously, the end is incredibly compelling, and we all want to know, are we going to see Pike? Are we going to see Spock? Who's going to play those characters if we see them? What's the bridge going to look like if we get to see that? There's a bunch of those types of questions from from fans like me, anyway. Um, Was Spock on Pike's Enterprise? Yes. Okay. Yes. He was not the first officer. He was just the science officer. Okay. But he's been under Pike's command for several years at this point. Well, it won't be Zachary Quinto. Maybe they'll go dig up Bruce Greenwood and have him re- reprise his role as Pike. 
Well, that's what I'm thinking. Like, you could do Bruce Greenwood and you could do Quinto without there being much of an issue. Oh, yeah. I feel like you Quinto, know. though, would... Ugh, that would be complicated. I would rather see it be somebody new. Why would it be complicated? Well, because he's the Kelvin one. He would be the only... Well, I guess no Nimoy crossed over. Yeah. To... Huh. I don't know. Well, I guess if you think about it, it's all it's all PBS, um, PBS, yeah, public broadcasting <laughs> system Star Trek. It's all Paramount, CBS. So the contracts are for those companies, so they could do probably whatever they want if they throw enough money at them. Especially with Viacom and Paramount, or, or Viacom is trying to merge the Paramount and CBS rights back together. You know, that's something that may happen. So, I mean, we'll have to see, right? Um but uh, do you guys have any final thoughts before we sign off? A great season of television. That's all I got to say. Good, good serialized sci-fi. There's, there's been a lot of like uptick in serialized dramas on, on TV and in their various forms. I think discovery made like opened a lot of doors and showed what, what really can be done with that medium as far as sci-fi goes. Um, And I think it like, paved the way for shows like this altered carbon that's just hit Netflix to be like, we can really, we can really do this stuff and it can work. Yeah. A really enjoyable first season. I love, I love a lot of the episodes. I've complained about some of the episodes with, I think logical complaints. One thing I'm happy about is the way they're doing the show. I think it gives it a lot of room for success. And as long as they keep letting the characters be who they are, let the story kind of carry where it's going and don't try to make it too ham-fisted because, you know, Enterprise had some struggles its first two seasons. So did Next Generation. So did DS9. Don't worry about the struggles. It's going to happen. Next Generation's first two seasons were pretty bad and they went on for seven seasons of greatness. So I'm hopeful that today's audience, that micro-burst popcorn audience can tolerate struggles here and there. But the season was great. And if you're not a Star Trek fan after it, then you're just not going to be. I'm sorry. I'm just going to say it. <laughs> True. No, I think that's fair. It was a great season. Definitely the best first season of any Star Trek. They're they're pouring money into this show at $8 million an episode. The cast is phenomenal. Um, and I, I only see it getting better at this point. I'm very excited for next season. So, um I guess that's it for us, guys. If you're going to be in town this weekend in Kansas City, go to Planet Comic Con Greg and I will be doing the first live episode of Red Shirts and Runabouts on Saturday at 3.30 p.m. You can also catch two other panels by the Heroes Podcast Network on Friday. Screen Heroes with me and Ray and Ryan are ranking the live-action Star Wars films with a live audience. And on Sunday, Costume Couture is doing their LGBT plus and cosplay panel. So please come check out that stuff. Um, we'll have that panel as our episode next week. So if you can't go, you're not going to miss it. It is going to be our discovery season one wrap up episode. So, well, also I should say this might be my last, uh, episode for a while. So, uh, if I'm not back for a little while, thanks for listening and enjoy these two without me. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll do our absolute best. So Jeremy, for those who don't know, is moving to the West Coast. And because of that, time and schedule is going to be complicated. So we are going to do our best to find a good time to record. Now that Discovery is on hiatus for like a year, we'll be able to record whenever we want. Because uh, Star Trek... Year. 
you know, is yeah, because uh, it's already all happened. So like, you know, so we'll we'll find some time. We will we'll make sure to keep Jeremy in the fold. Yep. All right, let's go to Black Alert. Wait, is Black Alert spoiler alert or end of show? <laughs> end of show. End of show. Black Alert. There's multiple Black Alerts. Red Shirts and Runabouts is part of the Heroes Podcast Network. The show is hosted by myself, Gregory Bosco, along with Jeremy Munkin and Derek Mayer. The theme song is by Flying Killer Robots. You can find us as well as other Heroes Podcast Network shows at heroespodcast.com, as well as on iTunes, Blog Talk Radio, Google Play, and anywhere you can use an RSS feed. Follow us on social media at Heroes Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitch. And you can also email us at contact at heroespodcast.com. Engage. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.